really all selling is social. People are convinced when you can share examples of people exactly like them that you have made more successful. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. There are three goals at the heart of almost all learning businesses, reach, revenue, and impact. Generating revenue is essential in helping learning businesses reach the right audience and make an impact. In this episode, number 370, Salisa talks about revenue with Brent Keltner. Brent began his career as a PhD social scientist and spent 10 years conducting qualitative research interviews at Stanford University and the Rand Corporation. He's now president of Winalytics, a go-to-market and sales acceleration consultancy, and author of The Revenue Acceleration Playbook. Brent and Salisa delve into what it means to design an authentic buyer journey, the importance of aligning and organizing content around value, personalizing buyer value, capturing the customer voice, and how to get effective social proof and testimonials, all with the ultimate goal of accelerating revenue for your learning business. Salisa and Brent spoke in June 2023. To start things off, I know that an authentic buyer journey is central to your work, so maybe just talk to us about what that is. What does an authentic buyer journey look like or what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, two things. One is it means you start with the buyer or, or your customer in the case of you have a relationship you're looking to stand, but you always start with their perspective and their why because your product only matters if you're talking about something they care about. Otherwise, if you don't already know that, and we have a lot of strategies around how to confirm within and across and after a call, what is their why? If you haven't confirmed that and continually reconfirm it, you're just pitching product at them. And in the current market environment, people are overwhelmed with noise and email and social and chat. And so if you're not talking about something they care about, 15 seconds you got and they'll check right out. So an authentic buyer journey means we always start with the buyer or customer. And the second thing it means is that our goal is not to sell anything. Our goal is to look for fit right? To look for fit on both sides. And so we think of, you know, we think of very candid and direct conversations, which is qualifying on both sides. Is this a good use of our time? Is there something we can do together that is one, you know, is better for both of us? And if not, let, let's move on. So it's about fit and it's about starting with what your buyer is trying to solve for. I like that idea of the mutuality of it, right? That on both sides, you're really looking for, does this make sense? Can we help one another, in essence? Exactly. And I know I've heard you talk about aligning and organizing content around value. And so I'm hoping you can explain a little bit more what that means. Yeah, I mean, there's a really, is a great 2019 article from the Demand Gen Institute and what they say is basically what your buyers care about is they want your content organized around use cases. They don't want it organized around your product. They want it organized around what problems does it solve for me. And then they want to hear peer stories. They want to hear from peers and peer references and peer name drops and peer testimonials and how it worked for peers. So when you think about organizing content around value, think about not your product, but think 
think about problem solution statements, right? Many of our buyers have this problem and here's how we solve it. And then think about content as pure social proof, right? Is really all selling is social. People are convinced when you can share examples of people exactly like them that you have made more successful. And so then, if I mean, that's the first layer, right? Is solve a problem, use pure social proof. But if, you know, basically buyers, as they think about what, what, is, what is personal to them, it's they have a goal, they have a role. If you're selling into the learning space, you know, and, and this is more on the corporate learning, but a chief learning officer has a different set of initiatives than an L&D staff, you know, somebody who's responsible for diversity and, and inclusion training or leadership training has a different set of goals than the business unit owner, has a different set of goals in the C-suite and how they think about investments in human capital. So you have goals, but you have roles and you want to see role peers. And then you have segments that you sell into. And the purpose of training investments varies quite a bit between manufacturing companies and financial service companies. And so, you know, without overcomplicating it, the more you can think about social proof is sharing peer stories with peers, the more value your buyers are going to perceive. So I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on uh, content marketing, right? We hear so much about content marketing and, and its role. I mean, wh- what do you feel like people tend to get wrong about content marketing or sort of how does content marketing fit with what you're talking about around aligning content and value? Yeah, yeah. Look, there was there's a great article in medium.com called a content tsunami. That's if you just Google it, a medium content tsunami. And the author reviews a bunch of research, but the punchline is, you know, 90% of organizations are producing more and more content, but only a th- less than a third actually have a journey around that content. So there's a lot of content production. There's no content strategy. My thought on it is start with a strategy. What is the story about value you're trying to tell around those goals or use cases around the roles? And then honestly, less is more in terms of the content. If you do a customer story, you know, you should have a LinkedIn post on it. You should have a video snippet on it. You should have a podcast around that story, right? Less is more because in a really, really busy environment, you just, you have to share the same message in different formats and different media just to have, give people time to engage. And you build a lot of trust with the consistency of your message. Well, and so social proof and the and testimonials that this already come up a couple of times in our conversation. That's something we like to emphasize as well, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts or your recommendations on how do you go about getting really effective social proof, good testimonials, they're going to help you make that case and help others see, yeah, this is a good organization to, to work with, to buy their products. Yeah. Well, the first thing is you got to ask, I mean, I don't know how much work you've have done with marketing teams, but Having done with marketing and sales teams across a bunch of organizations, including the learning organizations, it's amazing how many times you can sit there and everybody's got, you know, you're having an internal discussion about how we should position in the market. (laughs) The question is, well, has anybody asked our customers where they're seeing the value? It's like, oh, yeah, let's go do that, right? I mean, it seems, and I'm, I'm being a little bit cheeky, but I think, you know, usually we don't capture our customer voice often because we don't 
ask. And so we say, if you think about most positioning frameworks, there's two kind of dominant ones. Is One is just around competitive positioning, right? That's the classic market. What, what am I doing different than my others? The other is what's kind of the big, the blue ocean or the big market problem I'm trying to solve. Well, neither of those have anything to do with your customer, right? They're both about your story. And so, and they're, they're both hugely important. You want to differentiate, you want to tie to a big market challenge in a blue ocean, but you want to do it through the lens of how have your customers tell you, you provide value. And so we just encourage organizations to just get in the habit, you know, every six months, it's six new interviews, it's eight new interviews, three a quarter, whatever it is, where you are then going around this, what are the primary goals we solve? Okay, we're, there are certain personas that engage with that. Okay, can I go a little bit deeper on the persona? Okay, you know, segments vary a little bit. So can I go a little bit deeper on the segment? So it's asking your customers based on those elements of personalizations, goals, roles, and market segment, where are they seeing the value in your product? And then letting that voice honestly drive the uniqueness of your positioning and understanding the big problems you're trying to solve. I'm going to get really nuts and bolts here. I mean, how long do those interviews tend to take? Or, you know, how do you make the, the case to the customer to spend how many ever minutes of their time that you're asking, you know, giving you feedback on, on their perspective of your product? Yeah, great question. I'm glad, glad you asked because it's, you know, I think you can 30 minutes is usually enough. Uh, if you, you know, sometimes in a more exploratory mode, you need, need might need a little bit longer. But this is what the outreach should look inside. Like, think about an email. Is it's, you know, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, we've had we've had a great relationship. We've worked together for so long. Would love to set time to just see where you're finding the most value in our relationship. And then the next sentence is, and also, you know, things that we could improve that could go better to deepen the partnership. So this isn't, hey, show up to say how great I am. It's a transparency call, right? So that's the basic design of the email outreach. And what we encourage is a one-page set of questions at the beginning is, hey, tell me why you started with us and what, what problem were we solving and what were the alternatives you considered, right? Learn a ton there. The middle is you should have your hypotheses about the use cases you solve. And you should have a question for the three or four key things and ask them, right? Is, are you seeing value in this area or that area or that area around, you know, so for some leadership questions in terms of efficacy, right? Are learners seeing themselves as higher efficacy or better team engagement, right? Or better leadership buy-in or more persistence because people see a career ladder. So whatever your hypotheses are, ask them individually, because as you go across interviews, if you ask those three or four questions individually, you will pattern recognize. It's just natural. You structure it that way. And then the last part is, hey, and what else could we do better? What's the future look like? And if you've had a positive call, it's at the end, you're going to say, hey, this has been great. You know, would you mind if we write some of this up into a story? Would you mind sharing some of this in our content sequence? Would you mind joining a podcast? Would you like to co-author a blog? So it sets that up really, really well. And look, we always just say at the beginning, we're going to interview it so we don't have to scribe notes the whole time. Mm -hmm. So you've already got the recording, mm -hmm. right? And then you can ask for permission to kind of go forward into a, a success story or to the co content series. 
And do you always feel like it's better to do it real time interviewed? What, what are your thoughts on, you know, a survey, for example, and trying to collect some of this, you know, asynchronously through either responding to an email or, or a, a survey that might go out to customers? Yeah, I mean, look, I this was I was trained at Rand as a qualitative quantitative researcher, and you need both. Often, the you know, as you have a, you know, the qualitative like is sort of what are our main pockets of value, but you may have some questions like questions around what phrasing or certain capabilities which are more valuable. So great, now that you have actually through interviews figured out what are the points of momentum or the points of friction, great, go to a bigger survey. I would encourage you to think about, you know, you'll get a much better response rate if there's some kind of incentive and getting the report probably is not it <laughs> or maybe after the fact. But, you know, just think about budgeting for 50 bucks or 25 bucks or whatever to give people a cup of coffee if we're taking five minutes, you'll get a much higher engagement rate. And then in terms of what you do with that information that you're getting from those interviews or potentially from from a survey, I mean, do you find that it is more important to have it sort of be that that individual who's sort of the avatar or whatever, you know, role you're you're looking to sell to versus being like 78% of, you know, past participants in this learning experience saw, you know, pay raise or whatever, you know, in terms of kind of story versus numbers or, or how do you think about that and, and what you can do with what you learn? Yeah, you said the two, I mean, you need both, the story and the number, and the story comes first, and then the number. I mean, you think about the buying journey in anything, right? We need an emotional hook first, and that's why they say stories sell, right? Is I mean, the, the journey is I have a pain. You tell me a story which gets excited, right? It gets me excited. You give me some kind of hero asset or numbers or a business case, which now helps me justify the way I feel emotionally. Mm-hmm. So both are important. You need the you need the emotional resonance, and then you you know so the stories that people can relate to feels like pure social proof, and then the you know they're going to have to sell that forward. So the numbers are usually important to selling that forward. And the one other thing I'll think about the reason is. The reason to go into these calls with your hypotheses about value and then capture your customer's voice is, honestly, your customer's voice about how you capture value, just flip them and they become your discovery questions because they're kind of, the you know now the problems you solve and good discovery is not open-ended. You're trying to guide them towards the problems you solve repeatedly. We're grateful to WBT Systems for sponsoring the Leading Learning Podcast. Top Class LMS provides the tools for you to become the preferred provider in your market, delivering value to learners at every stage of their working life. WBT Systems' award-winning learning system enables delivery of impactful continuing education, professional development, and certification programs. The Top Class LMS team supports learning businesses in using integrated learning technology to gain greater understanding of learners' needs and behaviors, to enhance engagement, to aid recruitment and retention, and to create and grow non-dues revenue streams. WBT Systems will work with you to truly understand your preferences, needs, and challenges to ensure that your experience with Top Class LMS is as easy and problem-free as possible. Visit leadinglearning.com slash top class to learn how to generate value and growth for your learning business and to request a demo.
Now, I know that you have the concept of value plays and you have developed a, a number of these value plays. So I'm, I'm hoping maybe you can give us an example of what a value play is and then maybe what that might look like in action for a learning business. Yeah. So let, let's take mainstay because it's clearest in my mind and it's a, it's a chapter in, in the book. They are a conversational AI platform now working in the corporate learning space. And we started with them, it was higher ed. And it was really a, a platform to help colleges and universities with their admissions pipeline. So build a, a pipeline of applications, yield those applications, right? So they, they enrolled, came through the summer and then would stay in the first year. And when we started working with them, you know, they were, they were focused on their capabilities. So they would talk about how, you know, the personalization of communication, right? That it was one-to-one with every student or that you can now have a real-time knowledge base, right? And FA, FAQs, you know, up to 800 with, with Georgia State, or you could have this kind of blended modality of either staff-based interaction or electronic interaction for students to choose. Transformational product, when you talk about your product, any product, in my experience, your buyer very quickly is just going to hear wah, 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 <laughs> right? It's Charlie Brown. Mm-hmm. They will very quickly check out. So for them, it was as simple as like, okay, so what's the buyer problem that solves? Well, if you have a knowledge base and one-to-one communication blended modality, guess what? More of your applicants actually get their questions answered so they come into your candidate pool. And if you have a way of yielding, nudging them to complete elements of their application, you yield more of them. And if you're engaging with them in a personalized way through the summer, you reduce summer melt. So a value play is really about thinking about taking your individual capabilities, which matter because they solve a problem, and connecting them to some you know, higher level outcome that's usually around revenue or cost, or it could be a better user experience, it could be around you know, capital efficiency of your stock. But you'll know you have a value play if there's a problem solution statement. You have this problem which can be solved with this problem. If you just have a solution statement, you're probably product pitching. It seems to me that you focus on on B2B selling, that, that business to business selling. And so I'm curious to get your thoughts on do the approaches that you talk about and, and write about and work with, do they also apply to those B2C situations or do they are they more more appropriate for situations in which, you know, it's sort of higher volume or higher dollar type selling? The approach 100% applies to the B2C space, and I'll give you two quick examples. I mean, the playbooks are a little bit different, but we did some work with a company called Iron Tree that is basically a landscaping and tree removal company. They built a differentiated value prop in the two, they basically in that market, you have low cost providers that are always competing on price for residential consumers, and then you have industrial providers that are working with governments or big corporations. And they've found a market segment right in the middle for high-end retail consumers where they could basically the iron tree guarantee about the service experience that you are going to have. And so for them, building content around that experience, including testimonials, including kind of, you know, just little diagnostics, like, have you ever experienced this kind of thing with laborers that come to your house? 
leaving tools all over, right? Clipping your bushes, right? It's like, which of these? So they're just educating people about why they might, might want to invest. More expensive, right? 20, 25% more expensive. So the educating buyers about value helped them differentiate. And then they built content and they did have a field sales force. But I, I think of a company, we have a short snippet on a company called MeUndies in the next one, pure B2C. But if you think about most underwear selling, right, historically in all the major big boxes, there's like a men's section, there's a women's section, there's a kid's section, right? I mean, MeUndies kind of figured out that a lot of people like buying underwear is a different kind of experience. They built these paired, you know, men's and women's matches and also theme based around like the different movie for adults, right? <laughs> so Basically, they said people have a different goal for buying. It's not about gender identity, right, or age. There are these different goals, and they built their content strategy around that. They don't have a sales team. So now it's a content strategy that is positioning differentiated value. But if you understand your buyer's why, there are always new opportunities to find differentiated value, even in a consumer space. And the content on the consumer side becomes a lot more important because you don't have individuals engaging in conversations, but the same approach works. So the same approach can work with B2B, B2C. I'm curious though, are there certain characteristics or conditions that an organization needs to meet or have in place in order to apply these strategies that you're talking about? In a pure commodity markets, I mean, if that's the commitment, we're just competing on price and volume. We've talked with some companies in the construction business where it really wasn't a lot of alignment to the idea of building value plays. It was just, I mean, their buyers are basically like how quickly and how cost effectively can you get it there? Mm -hmm. So if you're in a pure commodity market, this is not a great area to invest. You know, when you think about this idea of, of authenticity or buyer centricity, it's positioning value and to build an emotional connection, but just don't forget the huge amount of value and trust you can build from honestly just listening to people, flipping the script, right? From it's about me and my product and my company to this is really all about you. And we work with sales teams in particular all the time when they get good at asking those questions and really understanding what somebody's trying to solve for. And then they put it in a follow-up email and they're shocked. I mean, I'm still shocked that they're shocked. They're shocked when they get an email back immediately and says, thank you so much for a great conversation or thanks for sharing this so I can share with your boss. When you listen to people, what they're trying to accomplish, it will just differentiate you from, you know, 75% of the people they're interacting with. And you cannot you cannot overestimate the value in that in building buyer and customer engagement. Well, and I think there's a implied second part to listening in what you just shared, right? It's listening, but then doing something with what you hear and not just sort of listening and then going back to your, the pitch that you, that you already had. Yeah, 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 a hundred percent. And it goes to you ask, so what, what is an authentic buyer journey to, to us? It means starting with the buyer, but then the second thing is looking for fit. And what we, when we work with, you know, prospecting or sales or sales, anytime you're interacting with a buyer, this idea that I'm asking you back, right, is I'm, I'm attuned enough to hear what you're valuing, but then I'm asking you back, like, you know, so this is what I understand you're valuing. What are your next steps in terms of seeing that's a possibility for us to work together? You know, who else are you going to talk to? What are you going to evaluate? So this idea, 
what will you do about it? We, as when we're trying to sell or market, marketers are better at it, but this idea that we need reciprocal commitments, we need to look for fit. There's actions on both sides that tell us that we are working towards something that is good for both of us, as you said. So you have such deep experience in, in marketing and, and sales and, and all of this. And we are also in a particular moment in time where artificial intelligence is really taking off. So I feel like I sort of can't not ask what your thoughts are on what AI might mean for sales and marketing, you know, in the months, maybe years ahead. Yeah, look, I, I think it's an awesome tool. I mean, I think anybody who's sort of rejecting ChatGPT or the others out of the box is, is nuts because there's two things it can do for you just out of the gate is you will get your blogs written a lot faster. I mean, if you think you can get a blog content and be done, you're, you're nuts. But first draft, right, that's 70% of the way there that you can then personalize to your content or your team, 100%. The other thing is we think a lot about in, pro in prospecting these days, we have seen with our clients, if you put in a personalization postulate, a, a phrase we borrowed from a, a team we did some work with about six months ago, but you know, just something personal about them, you can go industry average, it's sort of a just under 1% conversion to a meeting rate. We've, we've seen that go to three, five, 10% of people responding and being open to meeting by putting something personal in there about what you see on their LinkedIn posts, or you can get AI to source those much quicker. So you, again, you need to do a little bit of tailoring and all in our own campaigns, we literally build an Excel sheet before we upload it to Apollo. One of the columns is personalization postulate. Hmm. And we spend time figuring out what on their website, on their, you know, in their LinkedIn posts, what are they talking about around their mission? So we can build an email that starts with their personalization postulate and then connects it to our value prop. AI can just do that a heck of a lot quicker, get you those first drafts. So yeah, definitely sounds like you're in the camp of AI can be great support, help you move more quickly, do some of the sort of initial legwork for you. And then of course you have to add to it. And you have to add value to your point about, honestly, you 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 win when you're the closer you get to hearing what your buyer said and being able to recap it. Just it's like, oh yeah, it's about me. The buyer saying it's about me. They listened. They actually cared enough to listen. <laughs> They're looking to solve my problem. Boom. You just elevated yourself way above your competitors. So AI can't do any of that. They can kind of frame it, but they're not going to get precise enough. So we're talking on the Leading Learning Podcast. So one thing we always like to ask guests is about their own approach to their lifelong learning. So I'd be curious to know what sources or practices or habits you have that help you continue to learn. Yeah, one main one, I started about 10 years ago when my son was five doing karate with my kids. I am a very much... A high drive individual and my sports choices were, you know, I was a wrestler, I was a rugby player, I was a marathoner. So I just knew how to drive through stuff. Karate is a finesse sport. You know, it's minimal, minimal effort for maximum impact. And it's been awesome to do it with my kids. And, but it, but also just kind of reshaped my mind in a more strategic direction. And I've, I've written a post, I've written a bunch of posts about my karate journey. I was awful. <laughs> at it. I didn't have the mindset and I didn't have like, 
I don't have great physical balance and I'm, you know, so I was bottom 30%, but I'd learn from everybody. You know, I'd learn, my son had a better natural aptitude. The women, a lot of the women in the class were much better. I had no ego, you know, so I would learn from everybody and I'm a, you know, 10 years later, a second degree black belt and pretty darn good at it. So that's been a pretty powerful lifelong learning experience for me. Brent Keltner is the author of The Revenue Acceleration Playbook and president of Winalytics, a go-to-market and sales acceleration consultancy. In the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 370, you'll find links where you can learn more about Brent's work and his book and get free access to the first chapter. Jeff and I would be grateful if you would rate the Leading Learning Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you find the show valuable because ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And please spread the word about leading learning, whether in a one-on-one conversation with a colleague or a personal note or on social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 370, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Podcast.